You are now tuned in to the December 26er podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. What's up, 26ers? Welcome to another episode of the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha, and this episode features Eve Darboos. Now, Eve is so many things that it's hard to sum it up in one introduction. So I'll just say this. Eve was interested in software development before it was commonplace. As a startup founder, he transitioned from lead developer to an executive creative and project management role under his company, Plot Multimedia Developers. Now, you may not recognize that name, but you'll recognize the name of many of the brands he worked with during hip-hop's golden era. Eve eventually expanded into club ownership, and he even founded another startup. His latest endeavor, QNYC at the Bushwick Generator, is much too exciting to sum up here. But if you are a fellow content creator, you'll want to listen to this episode in its entirety. So without further ado, please take a listen, and I hope you enjoy. Eve, welcome to the December 26th podcast. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here and opening up this beautiful space to us, which we're going to talk about for sure in this interview. Hopefully. (laughs) (laughs) No, we got to get that in, of course, and all the amazing things that you're doing. Well, I'm excited to talk about it. And I'm excited to talk to you. So let's jump into it. Who is Eve Darboos? I am originally a software engineer. I went to school for journalism. I've never used my degree one day ever. Uh, I I have been writing software since I was 12 years old. My uh, uncle... Uh, went to California and uh, he got to participate in homebrew and right when computers were a huge thing in a booming business he was there in Silicon um, Alley I mean excuse me Silicon Valley I'll tell you about Silicon mm-hmm. Alley later um, and uh, that got me access to computers so you know growing up in uh, uh, a very very bad time in Brooklyn uh, you know a rough time in Brooklyn I was the kid with the computer in the house and you know guys would come over and be like, what What are you up to? What are you doing? And I'm like, "Like, watch, I'm going to write this couple of lines of code and I'm going to make lightning come across the screen. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I fell in love with it. And then I, I just kept on doing it. And one day I got on a, a computer magazine that had a HTML tutorial. And that was my um, kind of like doorway to uh, uh, building websites. And, uh, and, you know, when I was in college, the... Uh, dot com boom uh started up i was at more i i went to the illustrious morgan state university go bears um and uh while i was there a couple of friends of mine who went to cornell uh became billionaires for the day they went ipo uh for something called the globe.net mm-hmm. and i was like what am i doing with my life and i came back to new york and before i could even start a business I um I got a job offer to just building websites and um they paid me ninety five thousand dollars a year and so hearing ninety five thousand I couldn't afford to live in Brooklyn on that now but no way now but, um, <laughs> but back then you know nineteen ninety six you're talking about like that felt like life changing money so I started writing code I went to work for a company called Globix and um I went around the country basically preaching the gospel of web animation, streaming services, and uh, application development for media. And uh, that went great for a long time. And then finally, uh, a friend of mine was working at BMG at the time that they were, uh, uh, they basically were the label partners with Bad Boy. And um, I 
you know, we were talking and they were like, we need websites <laughs> and we don't really even know what they should cost. In fact, I won't say what company, but the first bad boy online.com cost $450,000. Wait, what? $450,000. For one website? Correct. It was like music videos back then. You know, a music video was a million dollars. Marketing budgets were very, very huge. And, uh, you know, I came in and I was like happily to say that uh, I'll do it for half. <laughs> you know what? I'm going to cut you a deal. <laughs> Give you a 50 percent discount. Right. And, you know, I worked with real like the, that's the thing about Puff. He kept really, really brilliant dudes. Um, Emmett Dennis, Jamil Spencer. Um, a lot of those cats were just smart guys. And, you know, I was the tech dude. I came in there. I pitched them. I did some things that was, you know, for free. And but I got in the door. And the next thing you know, we became the preferred um, developers for Universal Music Group. And for them, I've done over 700 executions. And I started a little company called Plot Dev. And Plot Dev, um, you guys, all everyone in this room seems a little younger to uh, to remember that. But you saw sites like Nellyville and uh, Motown and all of those websites were developed by me. And what really gave us the uh, opportunity was the the supposed the person who was supposed to really corner that market was a guy. Uh, I think his name was Darian Dash, if I remember right. And he had a company called Digital Mob. Mm-hmm. And they were getting business from, you know, Microsoft and they were basically the chosen ones. But I think they just started getting caught up in celebrity and being famous and popping bottles. And I was just, a you know, kind of grinding dude. And I, I was like, yo, I just want to do dope. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, I stepped in and, you know, I, I basically created a network of engineers around the world. Um, a lot of my um, designers were from Sweden and Croatia, and um, I was able to recruit uh, uh, the best engineers. And so I was able to lock a lot of business down. And that's what I did from 2000 to 2009. So I have so many questions. Okay. But let's start <laughs> um, with the fact that you were basically a software engineer. That was what you were into, building websites from the time you were 12. But you went to school for journalism. Right. And I, I think I have an idea why, but I want to hear from you. Like, why did you have this interest in those things, but you ended up going to school for journalism? Well, OK. So my father's a, and I'm not disparaging him mm-hmm. at all by saying he's a brilliant guy. He's a Supreme Court justice. Um, he when I told him, I said, Dad, one day, you know, you're not going to read newspapers, you know, all sprawled around you on 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 paper. You're going to read it on computers. That sounded ridiculous in 1995, 1996. It sounded like insanity. And so, you know, being a dutiful son and also being Haitian, you go to school. (laughs) For sure. Right? You go to school, you don't play games. You get your degree, right? And, you know, there weren't the programs. And, you know, Morgan State uh, had a telecommunication on program, but the classes were teaching like burning CD-ROMs. And, you know, it was very, very basic. It was very new. So uh, because I was so experimental, because I had this uncle who who, who was an engineer himself, I, it opened doors to me that was rare and, and, and there weren't that many. 
Matter of fact, you know, this is uh, being black doesn't always benefit me mm-hmm. <laughs> in my business because, you know, you you usually think your software engineer is going to be white, you know, look like Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah, some or, little skinny dude like with right, a hoodie on. Mm-hmm. Right. And I'm six foot four, 250. I look like a linebacker. I know when I walk in the room, I shock people. Matter of fact, they've told me, I can't believe you're Eve. They expected some French Canadian. <laughs> of course. So, uh but being that I had exposure to software and applications and computers, it made it where it wasn't crazy for me, right? But journalism was a respectable thing. You get a journalism degree, go work at the New York Post or something, you intern for two years, be poor, and then finally, you hopefully get a column. But there weren't, like, like now, there's everyone's a web developer now, right? And people barely have websites. People have Instagram. People mm-hmm. have Twitter. That wasn't the case in the 90s. So you needed guys like me to come in and build you microsites, build you full-out sites, build you uh, 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 platforms. And that made it where I could make a lot of money early. And, um, you know, uh, it got my first little fly apartment in Fort Greene and... Um, you know, I was able to just do more because the opportunity was there and because there weren't that many. And I was just about to tell you about being black, having an advantage. When Bad Boy was making their first websites, you know, the designers would bring Diddy stuff and he'd be like, I paid $450,000 for this bullshit. Y'all can't design something that's. Mm-hmm. And so what did they, what's going to happen? Like in New York City on Broad Street, it was called Silicon Alley back then. And, uh, they came and found the one black dude to come in <laughs> and like, kind of translate. <laughs> right. Because back then it wasn't hip hop wasn't as, you know, across the board. Everybody listens to hip hop and everybody gets the culture or have some basic idea of it. And that gave me the opportunity to kind of mix graffiti, um, you know, mural style design and then also merge that with, you know, just good information architecture, which we now call user experience, uh, user interfacing, and and just make it be able to translate and make sense for Biggie and Faith and, you know, everyone who was underneath that umbrella and they liked it. So from there, as that started as a freelancer, and when I started bidding on bigger projects like Sean John, they were expecting an agency. So I literally, and, you know, my wife is right there. She's my witness. I would pick up the phone and be like, oh, oh Mr. Darboos is uh uh, right here. Let me put you on hold. And then pick up the phone. <laughs> it's Eve. Were you doing this from like your house, from your apartment? Yes. From our first apartment. And, um, you know, we fronted like we were an agency and we weren't. It was really freelance at first. And then by that time, and I knew in order for me to demand those six figure checks, I had to be a company. And that's the way we, we kicked it off. Just being able to speak that language, you know, meeting with those folks and for them to feel familiar. And it's one of the things I'm always going to be uh, uh, very grateful to Puff and Jay. I work for both of them. Um, is that their success created opportunity for people that look like me. And because I understood and because I can translate that to a digital product that that gave me, you know, gravitas in the industry, that it was a miracle like, well, not a miracle, but a natural transition where if you were in college and you were seeing our websites branded with our little plot logo on it, when you went into the brand world and became brand managers, you would say, 
I remember when your your Sean John site, I thought that was amazing. And mm-hmm. I would be able to close deals and get projects with Procter & Gamble, with Toyota, with Pepsi, because a lot of those folks, when they leveled up, they remembered that you know, we got those opportunities from a lot of people in the hip hop world. And, you know, the reason why we got the Maverick.com, that was model, um, that was Madonna's uh, record company. The reason why we got that is because Puff co-signed and, you know, sometimes Puff knows me and sometimes he, he doesn't. <laughs> um, but, you know, Puff opened that door and because of it, we got credibility and we were able to build a lasting business that I still am creating opportunities now for others. So you got in and I mean, so I'm a little bit younger, probably. Mm-hmm. Right. So I was wow. a teenager in the in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was a consumer. Like, so sitting around watching TRL and 106 in Park mm-hmm. and these big million dollar videos and everything was slick and cool yeah. and urban. Um, but now as a as an attorney, I talked to other attorneys who were attorneys back then. Right. Mm-hmm. In the golden hip hop, you know, golden era of hip hop. And they talk about the money that was right. being thrown around. So it sounds like you had the design ability, mm-hmm. the technical ability. How did you get the vocabulary to be able to talk about these things in a way where people said, you know what, I'm going to write a check for you? You know what? That's an important thing. Mm-hmm. When I was so the first company I I, I worked with several little companies before, uh, but the first company that I worked full time for was a company called um, Globix. Mm-hmm. Globix was the brainchild of Mark Bell and his family was integral to it, but they they were the company that would do things like the first uh, streaming project for um, uh, Victoria's Secret's fashion show. Um, I don't know why we didn't know that millions of men would log on and crash it. <laughs> we should have been able to put make you know two and two uh, with that, but we we were the first ones to kind of prove that that was the case. And when I would see them be able to create decks. Like, they didn't teach you what a deck was in college. When I would see what a purchase order was and getting paid net 60 or mm-hmm. net 30, uh, you know, being able to come in on a pitch, you know, all, all of those things I learned, you know, ser- being giving service to a much bigger company. And that is what trains you and eventually gets you to the where you get your language, you you understand the, the process and, you know, you, you kind of surrender to that. And then when you're when it's time to do your thing, which, you know, I started just because it was the dot com bus. I went to a company. I won't say the name um, after Globix. They were a huge deal. Land Rover was their client. Land Rover was one of my big first big projects that I uh, ran and did all the information architecture for. And uh, uh, the company I went to work one day, I thought I was going to work there 20 years. And I went to work there and there were chains on the door. And all of us were sitting in the hallway. And I think back and I laugh about that because all of us were sitting in the hallway like someone was going to come back later and open and the door. And unlock the door. And all of us were going to be able to go to work. But the dot-com bus like really hit me that day because I left the office and I started walking down Broadway and Manhattan and in the village in Manhattan and I started seeing all these companies that were just open. Africa.com, pets.com, their doors were closed. Mm -hmm. And so I said to myself, well, what am I going to do? And the first thing that I did, which is probably the stupidest investment that I've ever made is I went down to South Beach and I bought a club. Wait. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Because so I'm listening to you talk, right? And I'm thinking... Man, Eve has all the foresight. Like, he knows what's hot, what's next, clearly. Yeah. And you went and bought a club? Yep. 
Uh, I was a dumbass, just like everybody else. But so I went down to uh, South Beach on a Memorial Day early when that first started happening. And I was like, look at all these people and mm-hmm. the traffic. And I was like, oh, it's just like New York City. If you can open a club in New York City, you could, uh, you know, you could do it here. But I didn't know Miami had seasons. I didn't know, you know, uh, South Beach really wasn't for black folk. <laughs> And so I opened this club. I got a liquor license. You know, that was all game, too. Um, And I was using my technical career to give me the background to get the liquor license and um, and open the nightclub. And which I could tell you some harrowing stories about that because there's politics to that. Absolutely. Sheriffs show up your door. Fire shows up at your door. And if you don't know how to grease those pockets or grease those hands and make those exchanges, they might close you down Mm -hmm. on the night that Eve is performing. And um, or, you know, that was the other thing I was able to do. I had relationships with people who manage rappers and I would bring them down. But, you know, I I didn't know that Miami was so segregated and, you know, black people partied in Miami. They partied in Broward. They partied on the other side of the bridge Mm -hmm. and they only came on specialized days into South Beach. Right. And, you know, I partnered with a a guy who was the manager of a rap group called Zopound. I'm Haitian. And Zopound was, um, it really was a Haitian gang down there that started (laughs) as a rap, that became a rap group. Shout out to Red Eyes and those fellas. Um, uh, but uh, we we partnered. We had a night. And next thing you know, Juvenile is shooting dice in my club mm-hmm. and Baby and Little Wayne wasn't allowed to come in. And he, I, uh, Little Wayne was like a legit little kid. Like he was a boy back then. Yeah. Like go back to the hotel and just <laughs> hang out. And, um type of thing because you know it was you know some lascivious things were happening in that in that space but it wasn't it wasn't something that you could really really win at and it was very it's a very very predatory business in the sense of one day I really had to reflect to myself where I was buying cases of Cristal for a hundred dollars and I was selling the bottles for 250 mm-hmm. now well 400 for Cristal 250 for Moet and the Moet case was 85 dollars and I promoter showed me a trick where he said, if you get the strippers from Coco's to come, shout out to my cousin Marley, uh, to come to the club, it'll get men to buy bottles. Of course. And that worked, but it was such a predatory business. Mm -hmm. And when we had more affluent events at the club, they all just bought top shelf liquor in a glass. And it, and for us to make money, I had to kind of prey on my own people. And here VIP, it is. VIP, bottle service, all that great stuff. Exactly. And we, 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 and I didn't stray too far from my technical career. I, I wired the entire whole club, the entire club. I bought, South Beach didn't have T1, sir, uh, T1, um, uh, uh, fiber, um, uh, on South Beach, I was, and again, I don't know where I get the game from, but uh, I was able to get them to to do that. They dug up all of Washington Avenue to lay the lines to give us T1 service for your club, for our club. And you know, obviously, they wanted to eventually do it, but we were their first customer, and so we thought, oh, we're gonna stream this live. We're gonna people are gonna wanna on the internet are gonna wanna be able to see, but. I didn't understand the demographic in Miami. And in 2000, 2001, Miami wasn't on the Internet like that. No. And um, because Miami wasn't on the Internet like that, it wasn't the movement that we wanted it to be. So at 
at the end, you know, we would, you know, I had to tell my brother who was uh, who was 22 at the time, um, you know, we're shutting this down. It's over. And he was like, it can't be over. What do you mean it's over? This is our life. And mm-hmm. I was like, no, we, we've got to shut this down. This is not a real business. It's not a real life. And, you know, I had bought, you know, my brother and my, my cousins who are more like brothers uh, uh, as a part of it as well. And we would going to, uh, I think it's, it might be called Mansion now. It's got to have another name, but it was Level back then. And we would come into Level and, um, you know, DJ Irie would, would shout us out like like we were stars. Mm-hmm. And we were the only black, you know, uh, nightclub owners on South Beach. And, you know, I was only 26 at wow. the time. And so because of it, I was able to just kind of, uh, uh, you know, be able to, uh, uh, you know, live this kind of lifestyle, mm-hmm. but it didn't make us money. Right. And because it didn't make us money, it didn't make sense. Mm-hmm. And so from there, I started basically saying, all right, I could live in Miami. I'm going to, you know, target Miami clients, more West Indian, uh, South American type of clients. And then I got a, a project for a bank in Haiti called Unibank. And that bank project gave me faith like I'm going to be able to get all kinds of business like this but again Miami wasn't it didn't it wasn't important for the businesses mm-hmm. down there and the companies down there to do to have a website or to, especially not to have one on a high level so I basically went back to just calling you know my clients my former clients that I worked with as a freelancer and uh from there I was getting business for um from you know bad boy again and I I first did the GDEP website, then Loom. And because those sites won awards, Micromedia Site of the Day, my favorite wow. website awards and things of that nature, they basically gave me a shot to do Sean, the very first SeanJohn.com. And that was that's won more awards than I can name. And that really was the tipping point for our my company, Plot Dev, mm-hmm. to really kind of corner the market on, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, developing websites for the music industry in particular. So so what percentage of your personal net worth did you invest into this club? One thousand percent. Is that a number? So everything you had, yeah. basically. It, I went from being extremely comfortable mm-hmm. to being to struggling. And because of that, it was like, you know, you you have to kind of recalibrate and the club came from you know we me um looking at the dot com bust and feeling very jaded and um something else i didn't tell you i, I had a dot com myself okay we raised 5 million dollars and then the wall street journal had an article where it was talking about none of these companies are the values that are are being are having the valuations that's correct a lot of them are failing so on right at the precipice of us getting the 5 million dollars to you know do my first startup they pulled it away so at the last minute someone said up oh, this valuation is inflated it's, no Exactly. Um, you you dot com companies are trash and uh, uh, took the money off the table. So uh, being very jaded and being and, and looking at it like, listen, I got to do something else. I uh, I ended up going to, and starting a nightclub mm-hmm. and doing some foolishness. <laughs> so but, you fun know, foolishness. right. Fun. fun. Had and a lot you of learn. Fun. And you also, you know, it's in failure that you really, really start to understand how, you know, important the the 
fundamentals of businesses is there. And, you know, as you grow and as you get bigger, you understand, you start to learn things like it's a very good idea to have a lawyer. Mm-hmm. It might even be a better idea to have an accountant, not to tell you how to spend your money, but how to access your money, yes. how to tax uh, um, appropriate is is one I don't I know that's not a regular industry term but mm-hmm. my accountant is always talking about you need to be tax appropriate yes and that changes all the time and I learned that process and then I also you know through the years at first I thought the quality of the work is the most important thing and but eventually I started learning your hype is more important than the quality of your work and then on top of that it's more important and instead of me fielding the best engineer in the world, which I always took pride in uh, uh, doing that and recruiting the the very best engineers. But you also have to have great salespeople. Absolutely. You got to have the folks that pick up the phone. And matter of fact, you might want to have them first before you have the people that's actually making the product. And, you know, so all of those failures led to to me understanding uh, exactly how to execute business and um you know, the, it's in the failures where you really, really, really learn the lessons. Absolutely. So even though the club was happening, um, and I want to touch on one more point from that in a moment, but even though the club was happening, Plot Dev still existed all this time. No, I, well, actually, so I'll tell you the, the story. Plot was a nickname that I got at, at Morgan State. Really? Yeah. Where'd that come from? Your ability to plot and plan? <laughs> uh an ex-girlfriend basically said, I'm going to call you plot because mm-hmm. you're always plotting. <laughs> and again, it wasn't normal. Like you were cool if you had a word processor when I was in college. Mm-hmm. Right. Like you were ahead of the, the, the curve. You didn't have to go to the computer lab or to the, the lab to type your papers. But when you came to my house, I had a laptop. I had another hard drive. I had a server. I had a, a, a modem you know, connecting to the internet with a dedicated line specifically to connect to the internet. And that wasn't regular. Not so, at all. So, you know, when when people would come to my, um, you know, I had a townhouse at Morgan and when people would come to my house, they'd be like, what are you up to? It looked like a scam. It looked like <laughs> I was a hacker. Or, You're running like credit card scams or right, something. Right. And, you know, um, all of those things are what kind of gave me that name. So when I was working for them before, it was consulting and freelance. But when I started calling them, um, the they would ask, you know, I, I remember the phone call like it was yesterday. It was like, what's your company name? And I couldn't think of anything because I realized this is not a freelancer call. This is a, it's a B2B, B2B mm-hmm. vendor call. And so I pulled it out of my ass and said, plot. <laughs> And it was like, all right, Eve from Plot is on the line. Can I? <laughs> and that's where it started. And Plot Dev, um, you know, sometimes people call it P dot Dev. Or mm-hmm. We had all kinds of little nicknames, but uh, that's where Plot came from, and that came after the club. After the club, got it. So it was just freelance before, mm-hmm. but after the club, now you have a name and a and a formal entity. Now right. we know the checks that were being thrown around pre-club. Mm-hmm. Had that decline already started to happen in terms of what people were willing to pay? So from so from 2001 to 2004, uh, the Internet still was exotic. Mm-hmm. Right. And you still had to buy a CD. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
And because you still had to buy a CD, uh, they still made a lot of money. For sure. And but then from 2005, six, seven, that's when the money started looking very, very, very funny. Mm-hmm. And budgets started being cut. And then MySpace came into the game. Right. So m- making MySpace skins were more important than than you know having a whole website mm-hmm. and bigger than that uh one of the things that you know basically told you that you always have to be able to see when a paradigm shift is coming in your industry you know from 2001 to 2003 if you were a minor act your website budget was 25,000 if you were a major act your website budget was 50,000 mm-hmm. if you were a big company like Sean John you might get 250,000 so those were the numbers and we were playing with. But then 2006 comes, 2007, MySpace is huge. Mm-hmm. That's more important. And people start getting technical skills. Yes. Right. So when I started doing Photoshop in the early 90s, that was a rare skill. But by 2006, it's kind of like a pyramid, right? In the beginning, it's, you know, a few mm-hmm can actually do that type of work. But then you started having kids at home who could make a MySpace skin. Right. Who could build a website, who could, you know, uh, do these technical things. There's more education, there's more books, so more people can do it, right? Everyone can make a meme now, right? Mm-hmm. But previous to that, that wasn't, that was a specialized skill. So we had to, you know, see that paradigm shift coming and start not just selling the technical, the software and engineering and design side, but then we started selling the marketing side, the understanding of metrics, the understanding of data. And we evolved, but we had the notoriety. And because of the notoriety, we were able to walk up into to Toyota and Pepsi and partner with big ad agencies who haven't become what the term now is interactive agencies. Mm-hmm. They they weren't there yet. They were trying to figure it out. So we would be the ones that would do that work. And those projects were could, you know, potentially be even more lucrative, but the music industry wasn't there anymore. Right. So the paradigm shift happened and luckily we were able to pivot and start working for brands. And when we started working for brands, we were able to 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 maintain, you know, New York City office space, 20 employees, you know, that that was able to keep going because, you know, we 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 pivoted. I want to pause here um, and talk about your network, because it sounds like you've always had solid connections that you've been able to to leverage. Is that an accurate statement? OK, so I, I'm not industry guy. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, as I tell a lot of these stories, a lot of people are like, I, well, I've never heard of that dude. I've been in the industry forever. And, and it's because I've always been more of a, you know, I'm, you know, I'm going to show my age here, but I've been uh, October 10th. I'll be married 20 years. Wow. You know, and when I first started working for Bad Boy as a vendor, not as a freelancer, but as a vendor, um, you know, I was having a baby. In that process, I was able to meet some amazing cats, Dowie Chow with public schools, just the gifted, gifted creative director, designer, um, cat, um, Emmett Dennis. Uh, he, he helped uh, um, Richelieu Dennis develop uh, a sundial brand, Shea Moisture, Newbie mm-hmm. Heritage. Yeah. You know, those are my relationships, but I never was the type of guy that partied with them. Mm-hmm. So I, I 
tell you a, a small story. I, I designed a um, an animated invitation for Puff's 30th, 40th, one of those birth, one of those milestone like birthdays that they had in Marrakech. And one of the marketing guys was like, you know, two people aren't going. Do you want to go? And one, I was having my first daughter mm-hmm. at that time, and I wanted to be there for every blow by blow moment of seeing, you know, the process of having your first baby. And then two, I realized one, if you're in this world, those guys need to know that you're in it to do business. Right. And the moment you start partying with them is the moment that you can't get your check. And then you become a hangers on. You become a part of the entourage. And so even though I had I wanted to go, shoot, I want to go to Africa and <laughs> For sure. go to Marrakech and be a part of that. Um, but I you know, respect. I, and I don't know if it was like a, a huge thing that for me to go or, you know, it just was like, oh, you do a good job. You're you're the you know, you're the web guy. <laughs> so come and hang out with us. And but what happens when and I've seen it a lot, especially with, you know, hip hop publications, they invite you on the other side of the velvet rope. And now you're one of them. And now you can't say the truth about them. And now you can't operate as a business. And I, I'm always warning young entrepreneurs who start servicing the music industry and start becoming vendors for the music industry. You can do things for them for free one time. But you have to make it where you're exploiting the relationship where that is your portfolio piece Absolutely. to get real business. And but you can't the moment it's buddy buddy, the expectation is gonna be for you to do it for free every time. Oh, you the homeboy, you was popping bottles with us. Right. Right. So for me, I was like, no, that's not gonna work. And uh and so I didn't go to Marrakech. I um stayed home. But I was able to work with those guys and do award-winning stuff for almost a decade. You just dropped some serious jewels because I think especially on the coasts. So here and uh, L.A., people get caught up in the glitz and the glam. Mm -hmm. And, you know, yes, it is an insular, insular world. But if you network enough, you'll be on the periphery, like the periphery of these industries, right? If, if you do good work and somebody at some point is going to invite you behind the curtain and and having a background in entertainment and the entertainment world as yeah. an attorney, I know it to be true. It is the people you think you could easily get money from, right? but you become a tool that can be used to leverage, to be leveraged for yep. them to get where they want to go. Absolutely. And, and unfortunately people get caught up in, I'm connected. And I have these great pictures online now, right? right. Social media. I, I know everybody. And I have met so many people who navigate film, TV, new media, music, all of that, who don't know how they're going to pay their rent. Yep. It happens all the time. I didn't want it to look good. Mm-hmm. I wanted it. I wanted to actually have money. And, you know, I, I don't again, it, it not it wasn't always a conscious, like well thought of because. I was really young and right. naive and, you know, made a lot of mistakes. But still, um, it it was something that I started noticing. And I would see how, like, beholden and addicted as well. Like, it's it's it, being around that and being in that world. You know, I think Jay has a, a line when he said you could look in, in the mirror and say, there I am. Mm-hmm. You know, people were defining themselves around these relationships and I see them now and you know they're mad about gentrification and <laughs> you know I'm and and I'm mad about it in some kind of ways too but 
I own my brownstone. You know, I've been able to invest. And it was because I was willing to be the nerdy guy who was about his business. And, you know, here's my invoice. Have it paid in 30 days. Net 30, baby. That's Make right. sure my check is here on time. That's right. Because, you know, and, you know, once we started expanding and I had 10 employees and then I had 20 employees, I had 25 employees, the pressure of that, you know, that'll also make you get, you know, good sense as well. For sure. Because, you know, there's times that payroll can't run. There's times that stuff got lean. We were in the middle of changing how the company looked and was structured. You know, it, it was there was, you know, I, I don't want to give anyone any illusions of or delusions of, uh, of you know, things were always sweet. They weren't. Things were hard. Mm-hmm. And, it, it, and, and because of it, bottom line always had to kind of come first. And the bottom line would give you a lot of sense. For sure. Yeah. Because a quarter of a million dollars for one engagement sounds like a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Until you start comparing that to the expenses, it right. takes to be an entity that takes on a quarter of a million dollar project. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, early on, the business was few projects, lots of profit in that project Mm -hmm. and the ability to kind of invest in improving your technology. But then at the end, it became where you were just flipping projects over and over again. You had to get quantity. Right. And that quantity had to be consistent and that pipeline had to be consistent. And so that was the evolution of that. And then even then, when by 2009, 2008, it was a recession. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget, I was partnered with a company. I'm, I won't say their names because, uh, you know, we're super cool. It's just this is might be some prior t- proprietary information. But we had a por- purchase order for $1.2 million from Toyota. But then in December... The they posted the first time that they lost money in like since the 60 years or something like wow. that. Wow. And they deaded the project. And I was sitting in office with what was supposed to be the lifeblood of my company for that, you know, fiscal year. And it was pulled off the table. And we had to basically then kind of reverse engineer what we're doing. And that's when I went startup with uh, um, the company Charge.fm. So I'm going to put this little tidbit out there that people don't know. And then I want to talk about Charge.fm. Okay. Because I, I think we're going into this again, like in, in, in the economic downturn. When companies see that that is happening mm-hmm. or they've already had some blip, in the matrix first message that goes out across divisions is belt and suspenders year cut money where you can find people are tasked with finding discounts uh, disputing invoices trying to find what's you know crucial to business what can be cut and that's the dark side of being a service provider and a vendor to a major organization because when that call comes down you could have a hundred you know 1.2 in the pipeline that goes away out of nowhere and they and they set these these contracts up so that they have an out if they need it for sure Correct. Um, You know, that's one of the hardest things for me Mm -hmm. is the part of doing business that hurts me the most because I prided myself from giving a lot of young African-Americans you know, opportunity. My my offices were always very mixed, uh, you know, engineers and you know, who came from all over the world. My my very best engineer, the godfather of my son, um, Henrik Ripkema, he came from Australia. Wow. And he lived with my family. He, you know, we, we brought him over here fresh out of college because he was talented. And, you know, then you're, you get this type of a downturn. Then you got to shutter your doors. Mm-hmm. Then you got to pick which one of your employees. It might have been the ones that you don't even like that much, but they were, they had a integral skill 
And then you would have to let go of some of the people that you love and the people that you mentor and the people that you care about. Sure. And they never take that well. And it's one of the things that that's very uh it's very um hard for on me to look back on because I really would choose people out of thinking that person could be X if I just opened the door for them and I showed them the way. Because mm-hmm. me myself, when I first started doing business, my mentor would take me to Martha's Vineyard and I would paint people's houses wow. just so that I could get around Xerox executives and IBM executives and, and um, you know, people who are doing things at, you know, a huge uh, uh, investment bank. I met uh, the cats from uh, Udendahl Capital on, mm-hmm. on Martha's Vineyard. And I was just out there, you know, painting people's houses, you know, it wasn't hazing. It was just, let me get in where I fit right. in so that I could get access to this information, you know? Um, and, uh, you know, so I wanted to do that with plot. I wanted to be able to open doors that are rare for people that look like us. Mm-hmm. And I wanted people to do business on a high level. And it, it I was able to do that. Like, you know, negotiating with Sony, uh, um, you know, working with United um, um, uh, United uh, uh, Artists, working with um, UTA, United Talents Agency, you know, um, Toyota, big, um, you know, agencies like JWT, Saatchi and Saatchi, Burrell. Those doors, you know, aren't really the type of internships a lot of us get. Exactly. Or the type of opportunities a lot of us get. So making you an account manager, making you a content editor, making you a producer, I would give people that reminded me of me, <laughs> which is it's which is another kind of part of doing business, a lot of time, it's not necessarily racism. It, it, it is in a way, but it's not necessarily racism why we don't get those opportunities. It's just, it's almost being human. When I go sit in front of, you know, my white male counterparts who are above me in the business world, a lot of times when they look at me, and especially when I was a young man, they don't see themselves 20 years in a, uh, ago. They don't go, wow, that was me. I could feel what he's feeling right now. I could, I was living in an apartment with four of my friends and just trying to make it. Mm-hmm. And that empathy is usually not there for us. But when I meet an- another young cat, you know, oh, you're from Brooklyn? Oh, you went to Morgan? Oh, you had this experience? You know, you wear these type of sneakers? Um, all of those things kind of tie and make people who can make decisions go, you know what? I want, I'm going to help you. Mm-hmm. I'm going to take some some of my resources and invest them into you because I wish someone did that for me. And and so when bad things happen, when business changed, that, you know, empathic, you know, connection, you have to turn that off and be like, look, this is what's going on. Mm-hmm. And we got to bring the company down to nine people. We're going startup, which is what I did that year. Um, that was kind of, again, I talk a lot about paradigm shifts, but that was the moment where when that, when that um, you know, the economic downturn happened where I was like, all right, intellectual property is a lot more uh, lucrative than service. And because I had that, had that $5 million venture capital deal pulled, I had a lot of like bad feelings towards even doing a startup. I didn't even want to do a startup. So, but I looked at the landscape and it's, it's funny. I won't say, I, I'm always 
hiding for people, but I had a friend of mine that worked at a company called Last.fm. I remember that, yes. And um, I think they sold for $280 million to CBS and they became wealthy. All of mm-hmm. the founders became wealthy. And um, I, you know, bumped into them at some kind of like tech convention. I was like, yo, man, what's going on? Congratulations. Yo, you, you're killing. He was, I was, he was like, yeah, you know, life is good. And I said, uh, he was like, you still doing that? interactive agency stuff like he was, <laughs> like that with the, the like, eye squint like he he looked at me and I could just tell that it was like really you still doing that and I had all of this programming power under my roof at the company and I was like intellectual property is better it's harder to 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 kind of get in because when you're a vendor you offer your services you get a check right right but when you're a startup, you have to build a product. You have to have a product plan. It has to fit in the market. The market size has to be right. The market climate has to be right. Mm-hmm. And you may be sitting without money for nine months. For sure. Right. But at the end, your intellectual property will be something that someone can buy. And, you know, that's what fortunately happened, you know, for us at Charge.fm where I didn't get the exit that I wanted. But and again, it was one of those situations where my competitor got one hundred and ninety million in funding. And when we looked at that, I had to figure out what is the best way to protect the investment that I had? What's the best way to, um, you know, take this IP make the money, live to fight another day, and then go on to the next, you know, venture. So we sold Charged um, in an aqua hire to a company called Vendini out in San Francisco. I had to work for them for two years as part of the deal, you know. And, you know, I was able to come out of that, you know, being able to be here now and looking at a much bigger play. So... For people who don't know and understand startup speak, you know, Acquire is like your company gets acquired, but you, you're still involved. But you are now an employee of the acquirer. Correct. Right. Correct. How did you feel about that? Did you say at that moment, I'm going to do this now for the larger play? Did you have that foresight? No, I I cried and I whined and I was depressed about it the whole time. Um, not going to work for Vendina. They were awesome people. It was the giving up. Mm-hmm. It was the not getting because I I wanted to make everyone at my company rich. And, you know, a lot of people didn't get what they deserved and what they should have gotten for all the hard work and dedication that they put in. Um, But again, this was what had to happen. Right. I didn't do. um, My father always told me the difference between a man and a boy is a boy does what he wants to do. A man does what he has to do. And that's how those decisions had to be made. But the depressing part was in making that decision was I think I'm a revolutionary by heart. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm, I'm Haitian. That's in my blood. That's in my spirit that I'm going to fight the revolution to the end. Um, and I didn't feel very Jean-Jacques Dessalines at that moment mm-hmm. because I was selling. I was giving up. I was going to work for someone. And, you know, looking back at it now, it was the best decision that I made because it lets me now help more expand. And I learned a lot. Once you once you get acquired and you come in, you're leading a team and you're in a much bigger company, you get to see how bigger plays get made as well. 
And, you know, that's more information in my information bank. And you take that and you move forward. Absolutely. So let's talk about what your present day looks like. You did your time (laughs) as an acquired entity and now leading a team. um, And you now are on your next chapter and, and hopefully creating all those opportunities, definitely creating all those opportunities that you've wanted to do for so long. So tell us a little bit about what you have going on. So for the past year, I've been um, consulting and helping startups because people have great ideas. They don't know how to technically execute them. They don't know how to hire a team. They don't know how to, you know, do product requirements. And I'm a... I'm what's called an agile product manager, right? Mm-hmm. And it's that's data-driven format in how I ran my companies. And so in doing that process and of agile, you become very metric-driven. You become, you know, it's the numbers that makes you notice opportunities in the market. And, and one of the companies that I, I was consulting, I started looking at the CPM of people who create content. And while I was consulting that company, I met, uh, a woman named Toby Moskowitz. Toby is a real estate developer. Her company, um, uh, Heritage, uh, has the Williamsburg Hotel here in Brooklyn. And, you know, that kind of like rapport, like we would be in meetings and we'd finish each other's sentences. And I recognized her as someone who could possibly be a, a, an ally. And so when I started looking at, you know, cost per milli or mm-hmm. cost per thousand, what people on YouTube get, paid, which is $7.50 to $8, I saw that those content creators were getting the same amount of eyeballs as the people on on television. Wow. Right? Your podcast could be getting 500,000 downloads and it's just you and your boys doing it while someone on terrestrial radio is getting 84,000 to... you may, They'd be thrilled to get 200,000 mm-hmm. listeners on a daily basis. and But the CPM is widely and vastly different. So we started writing not... It wasn't. It didn't start as an algorithm. It started as just basically a spreadsheet. And we were looking at how do we get level the playing field for these content creators and how can I use my resources to basically create a platform so that they can become businesses, one, two, get the proper CPM for their dollar, and then lastly, have a place to be able to work, grow, and then accelerate their businesses. So we started writing the model, started creating the 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 algorithm, and I took that to Toby. And I said, you have vast amount of space. You want to be a, uh, you know, someone in our community of Brooklyn that gives back, that gives people opportunity. She has all of these great programs of high school students and, and the like, I said. But the jobs of the future isn't going to be running a press at some industrial park. No. The jobs of the future isn't going to be learning how to, you know, uh, uh, be on an assembly line. We need to show cities that the jobs of the future are going to be content creators, are going to be people who actually make, um, you know, uh, uh, who actually influence through media. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I presented my algorithm. I don't know if she got it all the way, but she's such a savvy businesswoman. She said, let's go for it. So we... Um, she had already had this place in mind. 
um, and it's called Bushwick Generators here in Bushwick, lovely Bushwick, um, Brooklyn. And and the idea was creating a space where ideas, creativity, and and people who had ingenuity could come and work and. And we would, by giving square footage of space, we they would be investing in them. Mm-hmm. And I basically took that model that she already wanted to do, and I structured another model called QNYC. And QNYC is an incubator for content creators that that is integrated here at Bushwick Generator. And there's 75,000 square foot of opportunity there in and right now we're talking to anchor brands. We have a hundred million dollar fund. Twenty eight percent of that is in, mm-hmm. and we're about to just start investing in content creators and not just people who are already popping, but just people. When we plug them into the algorithm, we can see that by the net by the network effects being applied to them. You know, maybe you have ten people who are hot, right? And then you surround them with peripheral uh, 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 content creators from other demographics, other markets that lifts, you know, they say high tide lifts all boats. By having all of those folks in, it lifts them all up. Absolutely. Right. And this space that we're in right now is going to be a, a huge ad sale space. And the idea is to get people to $25 CPM. Wow. To get people to, you know, um, MSNBC in New York City in LA charges $35 CPM. That's the reason how they can have a huge newsroom. That's mm-hmm. the way they can, you know, and, and they're not all profitable entities themselves. They struggle, you know, like everyone else struggles in this new media market. But we can give more value. We can directly speak to specific demographics. And what we're going to do is basically create some operationalizing for 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 those content creators, get them into the door, write them a check between 50 and 250,000, depending on your audience size. And we're investing and taking small pieces of equity into the company and giving them the push they need to to go to the next level. Some people will be podcasters. Some people will be, you know, people who make films. Netflix is about to open around the corner. They're going to be a neighbor. So we want to be able to have a laboratory where we grow these folks up, where we act as a true incubator. Um, with Charged Out FM, we were a Y Combinator finalist. And by being a Y Combinator finalist, once again, it's this ex- exposure. And right. when I was on their campus and I looked at what they did and then I looked at how those meetings even be after we, we didn't, you know, um, we, we didn't get into Y Combinator, but then I would follow them and I would see the process of what they call a semester or, or a class. And what they were really doing was they were bringing in people, teaching them how to be businesses and then connecting them to money. Absolutely. And that's what we're going to do there here. We're going to, you know, some folks don't know how to make a rate card. Right. Some folks don't know what their value is. There's podcasters are doing deals where they're giving, you know, the URL of the company slash whatever their company's name is. And and they're getting paid after someone signs up. Mm -hmm. That's criminal. You know, uh, uh, ABC doesn't have that burden. TBS doesn't have that burden. 
and you're creating com- amazing amount of impressions and not getting the right value for it. So QNYC is going to have a, a three pronged uh, um, process. There's Q Collab, there's Q Connect, and then there's Q Community. Uh, I'll start with Q Community. Okay. So because this space is going to have tremendous amount of studios, and a lot of the people we're going to invest in aren't going to be filming here, mm-hmm. right? That studio space can be used to invest in our communities. So if you're a kid that wants to have a career in whatever form of media, um, even if you're an Instagrammer and you're creating content for Instagram, you need a place to shoot. You need to learn how to do production. Like your your team is very produ- um, professional. I might hit them up to, to come and teach a class. Um, uh but they need a place to be able to actually learn and actually execute in their craft because no one is teaching YouTube 101 at any of the college no, not colleges, happening. right? No, and and YouTube as a business, like a lot of people say YouTube is evil. Um, they're not. The cost to host and and stream all of these folks' videos makes it where they can't give you a fair deal. So YouTube is just the, uh, it's probably what I like to call the peel of the apple. Mm -hmm. But if you bite into it, there has to be more. You can't, (laughs) you know, and that's where we come in. We're going to teach them how to do integrations. We're going to partner with agencies, um, preferably in Brooklyn because we want to serve the, the the Brooklyn area where we where we do ideations. We we take our folks participating in the incubator and, and taking them there, and then also giving these kids the opportunity to create content on a high level and make it a career. Sure. So Q Community is going to be focused on that, where um, Q Connect is for people who already have an audience. The but the challenge for them is I'm a stay-at-home mom, right? Or I'm I'm a single mom and I've got to go to my nine to five and do my real job. But I've got these hundred thousand people who follow me because, mm-hmm. you know, my my beauty videos are popping. Right. Right. So we're going to give that person who's already kind of uh, has a following and we're going to take them and say, we're, we have 20 ad salespeople here. Um, in at QNYC, we have two agencies that we work with. That those are real numbers. That's what we have today, and we're going to basically connect them directly to brands so that they can get the value for their impressions that they deserve. And then you know, so that's where that works. And then Q Collab is going to be our incubator classes. Okay, right? Um, Q um, Connect is a accelerator. Q Collab is where you're going to come here, you're going to work in our office spaces, it'll be a WeWork-like environment, and you're going to shoot and you're going to make things here and we're going to take you through a process where we have events where brands come and those brands are are going to basically get to know you. Instead of spraying and praying on mm-hmm. YouTube, they're going to know here's 50 people or 50 um, groups of content creators. Some content creators have three channels, sure. two shows, w- whatever it may be, but 50 individual companies that they can kind of create a direct relationship with, know that their brand is not going to be sullied um, by you know the things that make it where they can advertise and folks. And then 
the network effects, having all of them in a group, right? Having the amount of impressions of a vice, for instance. Mm-hmm. You know, vice is, I was reading something about vice the other day where um, they were like, oh, vice is in trouble. They missed their their target revenues by 100 million, <laughs> right? Vice made 650 million God. last year, right? When we group these this network of folks together, they'll be they'll have more impressions than Vice. And so the return on that money should look like six hundred and five million. I mean well to be honest, they they've got television networks now. They they have, you know, they're more than just a uh, internet based mm-hmm. um company. But that number, if our algorithm proves right, it's not an it's not an insane number to get to. But uh, a content creator alone can't really get that 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 right. type of uh uh um you know a dollar because when you go to Pepsi, Pepsi doesn't want to invest in a hundred individual content creators to get to five million impressions. They need to just go to one person mm-hmm. and say, "Are you going to get me the impressions I need to make my mark for this quarter?" And by networking all of these folks together and also having like the peripheral community and event space hackathons, all of that that's happening, it lets a uh, uh, a Pepsi, and I, I say Pepsi because I, I have a nice relationship with them, and I, I like them. Um, um, they haven't given me any money yet, though. But um, <laughs> Pepsi but, get with the program. But <laughs> Pepsi can come in and know that they can make that huge investment. We can disseminate it through our network of of people who are participants in the incubator, and they get what they want, and they also get the opportunity to invest in communities, young people, and you know, burgeon you know, content creators. Like Pepsi has been trying to figure that out for a long time as Mm -hmm. an example. I know that because they were a client, we did experimental uh, viral videos for them and they want to figure it out. They want to figure out the the sauce. But the reason why they do so much traditional is because they can take that Cardi B commercial and put it on TBS. And TBS is going to have X amount of shows, X amount of reruns and movies. And they're going to get the impressions necessary for them to have written that check. But by networking everyone into this one incubator, I can then go out and my ad sales team force can go out, monetize, you know, speak to those folks and say, we're going to deliver on this high level and you can invest your dollar. And here are the, the grownups who are going to manage that mm-hmm. and be a part of what they're doing. And and, and it's just a, a, a smart, you know, kind of a way to deploy uh, uh, and, you know, an advertising buy. And so being metric driven, being really data driven as because when it comes to the reality is I'm not a media mogul. I'm a software engineer. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, most of the things that give me comfort in making decisions is looking at data, looking at impressions, looking at uh, math. And from there, I'm using math to create this process and to say to a, a brand, here's what you get by making this investment now. And it wins for everybody. And why why I find this so fascinating is mm-hmm. because um, I know that from talking to people who sell you know, advertising on behalf of podcasts that brands, they know that there's something here, mm-hmm. but they don't quite get it yet. So they may say, oh, you know, here's twenty five thousand dollars. Can you right. go find, you know, middleman, go find some some podcast that's doing well, right. you know, that will pay them to put the the ad on. So it's like but when you think about the six hundred million dollars of right. that, those types of entities, that is pennies. Right. Mm-hmm. But you have a lot of content creators out here who are like, if I can just get, you know, one brand to, to buy, you know, some ads, you know, 
know, pay for some ads at 25 grand, I'd be set. Right. What I respect about what you're doing is you're now putting it into numbers in a way that I think up until now, a lot of people just talk about content creators as like, oh, people like to listen to them and that's cool. It's a feeling. Oh, right. they have the it factor. No one has really, that I know of, has really taken the time to figure out a way to say, no, no, there is a way that we can project as you would in, in other industries as well. I feel like brands will get it. Mm -hmm. Do you think investors understand yet? Like the, the possibility here? All right. So there's a lot of things going on and to, to make sure that it's kind of clear what's mm -hmm. happening. Brands are on cycles and brand managers are stressed. They've, they're in five meetings a day. Mm -hmm. They have to go through some politics within their companies, but these huge monolithic companies, it's hard for super tankers to turn on a dime. So they're, they've been waiting for someone to kind of figure this out. And a lot of people who do this, they do it as the agency model, right? And the problem with the agency model is they don't give you any money. Right? Facts. So they, they say, hey, we're going to manage you. We're going to make calls for you, but you can't create content because you don't have any money. So the first thing we had to resolve and 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 we had and we're resolving it not just for the content creator, we're we're resolving this for the brand who doesn't have the internal mechanism to figure this out. So and and I know this through lots of executions for for major um, companies. We are figuring this out. We are also basing it off of math and data so that it could be proven. And then and then what what comes with that is comfort. Mm -hmm. One, but then we can tell the content creator before they've we've sold an advertising you know dollar for them. Here's fifty thousand dollars for you to just be able to go. You know what? I could just focus on my craft. Right. Here's for a a bigger company. Here's two hundred fifty thousand dollars. We're gonna take X amount of equity based off of evaluation we're making off of the audience you have now. Our job now as an investor, right, is to see the company grow it so that we can get an exponential return on on our investment. Mm -hmm. That's a model that hasn't really been done with content. There's a couple of companies that are trying to figure it out as well. But what what we're doing is is saying this and, and this is and I'd be dishonest if I said, oh, this is completely like new it's not it's mm -hmm. it's kind of like reverse engineering something else that works i looked at what y combinator was doing and i said at the end of the day this is genius mm -hmm. right they have a specific methodology to pick winners and they can pick winners with confidence and they can groom those winners and then investors on the at the series a level level leaving so you start with angel your angel friend friends and family then angel and then you try to get to series a and series a investors can see people who go through the y combinator process and have the confidence that they will deliver and so that model is what we're bringing here to qnyc we're creating a process that not only do they the brand gets a value they also get comfort you know, AT&T the other day just pulled their ads off of uh, a YouTube. And because they pull their ads off of YouTube, because it's it's a walk, they're spraying and praying. Right. YouTube doesn't have the, the facility to say these content creators are safe. We have a relationship with them. They don't. They YouTube is not in a position to really do that. And it's again, it's not because they're bad guys. They're 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 really a social media company mm -hmm. that became a media property. Right. And. 
So they're not built to reward great content creators. Who is is something like us, where we can invest in them early. We can take them to market in a, in a whole new way. We can open them up and create a pipeline directly to money. And again, what we have to do here is pick winners. And if we pick winners, everyone wins. I feel like the, the hairs on the, my arm are standing up and I'm watching my team here. <laughs> And everybody's getting excited about what you're doing. Um, I mean, it's the the reason why when we speak to brands now, mm-hmm. you know, I, I have a, uh, one of my partners. Her name is Lori George. She's a rainmaker. She's, you know, um, for as beautiful of a woman she is, she's a beast, right? Mm-hmm. When she talks to brands, they get it right away. And you see that they're already trying. Like Verizon has like a content you know, um, studio in Manhattan, uh, BMW invested in Urban X, where Coop, their Cooper Mini, it's it's an incubator inside car showroom, <laughs> right? And they used real estate to give people some place to come work, collaborate and execute, and they give them money. So they're making an investment, but that investment that, you know, when you go to any kind of tech any kind of tech uh, uh, area, like Dumbo, as an example, mm-hmm. has become a very tech, um, you know, oasis here in Brooklyn. There's a vibe there and you can't pay for that vibe. So we're taking that same model. We're creating that vibe. We're creating that partnership with communities and, and hopefully partnerships with the city. Um, Mom, Mayor's Office of uh, uh, Media and Entertainment, you will be getting calls from me. <laughs> Because what we're going to do is we're going to create a vibe here that that YouTube cannot do. YouTube is a technology service provider and they give you money. But YouTube is television now. Right. I wake up and I watch YouTube on my big screen. And but the people and the content that I'm seeing on YouTube, they're not getting paid like the people on the cable networks. And so all of that is opportunity. It's it's unfair. Ninety six point five percent of um, YouTube content creators make earn below the poverty line and the poverty line isn't even the real poverty. Mm -hmm. line. Like if you're above the poverty line, you're still broke. Right. So how do we take someone that's showing so much value and actually pay them what they should be paid? And that's the future. You know, that that really is where all of this is going and the, and and the opportunity to to really disrupt media is what we're we're doing here and QNYC, you know, a year, maybe two years later, we want to do QLA and we want to do Q Chicago and Q Miami, but we're going to, you know, uh, we have those aspirations. We we have those goals to grow that way. But truthfully, we're going to focus in. We're going to pick winners and we're going to take them to market and, and make them make money and show that this model is a smarter model and it, that this will help you too. People mm-hmm. won't feel as, what's the word I'm looking for? Exploited. On, you know, people feel exploited Absolutely. on YouTube. And, you know, they get mad at, at the YouTube algorithm. You're not showing my videos. You're not. This is a much bigger thing. As many employees as YouTube has, mm-hmm. most of them are there to make sure that it works. For sure. Most of them are there. They And they have a, a strong um, um, wish to, to be, to serve the community because when that message is not being made that these large monolithic companies aren't serving their communities, it's bad for their business. You can see what happened to Amazon mm-hmm. very recently. Although, you know, I'm one of those people that sides on, oh, that was on the side of, this would have been great for New York. 
the problem was the message wasn't told well. And because the message wasn't told well, it made people scared. It made people feel like they were going to get caught up, cut out, like they were going to, like Amazon was going to come and exploit everyone in their community. And the other opportunity with Q is to collaborate with YouTube, is to collaborate with Amazon, to bring their people here that's looking for programming, that's looking for content. And as these media companies are growing and expanding, they're becoming more voracious for wanting more media. Mm-hmm. And this laboratory that we're building here will refine um, people's skills, allow them to work on it as their core job and not as a side hustle because a side hustle is exactly how it sounds. It's a it's a hustle and there's a big difference between hustling and doing business. This allows people to move from hustling to business and by allowing people to do that, uh, it gives not only them comfort to actually, you know, you know, make, you know, perfect their craft. It also gives them the opportunity to uh, give comfort to brands to know that I'm going to write this check and I'm going to get what I need on the other end. And it sounds like, too, it's going to level the playing field for some black content creators as well. That's a huge part of this. Mm -hmm. Um, When I recruited Lori to, to join me and become my partner in this, like she's my, in every sense of the word, she's my partner in this business. Um, her thing was, this has to be, we have to help minorities. Mm-hmm. And we have to help women. And I was all about it because you can do that without hurting your bottom line. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, um, sometimes I'm a ruthless capital <laughs> capitalist, but there's a benefit investing in women. There's a benefit in, in investing in minorities that brings you, that comes into your business as well because the people who are winning in content creation are white males. Right. Um, some some Asian. Uh, but the reason why isn't because they're white. It's because they have the opportunity and something in their life, whether they had money before or, you know, their parents were rich or whatever it is, but it's the same typical issue where a white male can, you know, do this full time, perfect their craft, chase their audience, market their brand and grow their audience Mm -hmm. where minorities and women cannot. They might have the best content, right? Right. They might be they might be doing you know the most interesting stuff, but they have it's a side hustle, mm-hmm. so they can't protect their craft. They can't be consistent. You can't know that their video is coming out every Wednesday, eight o'clock. It, it's happening the way that it happens and a brand manager isn't fretting because they had an integration inside of that and because she had to do stay at work late doing whatever because that's her the, a lot of women have women have children right women don't get paid as much so they don't have the opportunity to be able to uh, uh, execute their their um, content business strategy um, like white males do. We want to even that playing field, and a part of our our um our charter um, has us where we are uh, uh, dedicating fifty percent of the funds for minorities and women, and so that lets fifty percent of our fifty or one five fifteen fifty five zero. I just want to make right. sure people got that. Yes, nah, that's important, <laughs> and. But so, again, it lets us make sure that we're just blindly, not well, not necessarily blindly, but 50 percent of the fun is ruthless capitalism mm-hmm. numbers. Right. Data driven numbers on who we should, you know, 
give this money to? And then the other 50% is who can we invest in that's just good for society that we also believe can do numbers. Right. And so, you know, uh, that's important to Lori. That's important to me. And I think it's important to the brands as well because brands need to be able to get that message out. They that do. They're here, <laughs> that they're not here to just sell you their stuff, that they're actually here you know, where they, they're they happy for you being their consumer. They're happy to have you as a customer. They don't want you to feel like every time I watch this YouTube video, I'm exploiting the person who worked hard and created that content. And then I'm giving them a fraction of what they should get because it cost us too much. Mm -hmm. This makes it where everyone kind of, you know, and of course, business, there's never 100% harmony in business, but that's what's so great about that. And that's what's so compelling and, and why I've put, you know, my personal capital in this is, and, and I'm making this investment in time and everything else, um, is because this particular model lets us do good and make money at the same time. Conscious capitalism. I don't like that word. I know you don't, <laughs> but I can tell, I can tell before I even said it, that you weren't going to like no, but it, that, but I think I know, but you know, if, if, um, again, it's, it's because I, I've learned to speak the language of Wall Street. Mm -hmm. I've, um, I've learned to speak the language of Silicon Valley and Silicon Valley is very hopeful. It's very like, you know, this is going to change the world for everyone. You know, like they like making those investments, but when they get past that, they want to see what is your CAC and churn? Mm -hmm. What is your revenues? How have you grown this company? Have, how many customers have you acquired? That's the bottom line at the end of the day and as the investor might have felt good about what you were doing but then eventually it always gets back to mm -hmm. what did I get for my money right so I'm so caught up in Q that I'm almost <laughs> off script for some of the other things that we're supposed to address. I do want to talk about timeline and how people can find you and all that great stuff. But before we do that, mm -hmm. tell me about a specific time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Wow. Um, this is going to be about not about business. It's going to mm -hmm. be about, you know, being a parent. I have a daughter who dances ballet at a high level and um I don't understand it. It opened me to a world of, of a different kind of affluence. Mm -hmm. The people who fund ballet, she goes to the School of American Ballet, but the people who fund ballet, um, patrons they're called, are very, you know, upper crust, um, high class folks. And it's a very mean, <laughs> the moms are competitive, the kids, the girls are competitive. And it's very, it's a very mean you know, kind of world. And we were at when it was early, it's, it's, it's become so different. And, and, um, I'll, I should probably thank Arthur Mitchell, who is a ballet, African-American ballet, um, you know, uh, uh, just legend, you know, um, Presidential Medal of Honor winner and so many accolades. But he discovered my daughter by accident. Wow. And um, and she had the build and her background really was gymnastics. But she grew to be five nine by the time she was, you know, well, actually she was five seven by um, 12. And there's no five seven gymnast. No. You could forget it. And she'd be on balance beam and dragging her feet on the floor. She just was too tall. But she had the strength. She had the balance. She had, you know, and she started going to a school called Ballet Tech. They've discovered her for the same reasons. And um, then Arthur Mitchell kind of put us into this world. And 
supporting her in this world of her where she's competing and doing like it's the equivalent of being a when you go to school of American ballet it's like being a, a top 10 draft pick in wow. the NBA it's the top school in the United States if not the world it's it's one of the 10 right um with the Bolshoi and everyone else but I was completely ignorant of that world but I had to communicate and I had to basically start the political side of it and I had to develop myself as a person to communicate in a in a space that I wasn't comfortable and because what was at stake wasn't really business or money it was your child's dreams wow so my articulation my you know call it whatever you want business savvy or whatever it is and it's one of the things that I really just I always thank my father for because me like any other kid growing up in in um crack era Bed-Stuy and, and Flatbush um you know I spoke like I spoke mm-hmm. it's when I talked it sounded like a Wu-Tang album <laughs> and and um but my dad stayed on me about articulation because that's your passport being able to speak and we, you know now we call it code switching mm-hmm. but being able to make that speech and rise above what was comfortable for me allowed me to make create relationships create opportunities and help my child live her dreams and she's still there now she's wow. doing well and for me it's like you know when when you ask that question in my business side it's it's very organic how you know it came it all came about i had a monetizable skill at a time few and far in between did it and i had a competitor who almost had the whole market who started popping bottles so it, it all was i i like to say it was simple but it just kind of was like a chain reaction of events that i can't say that i had to ever really be exemplary i always used to t- Say that um um I used to have a line that I walk into meetings and I'm the black Don Traper, but um you know it was very natural. It wasn't forced. It wasn't who I am. I was able to communicate the idea that I understood something that they didn't understand, right. and I could deliver and I could reach audiences that they they didn't. But here was a place where I was defenseless, where I I couldn't use my natural ability to or what I was good at to create opportunity for the most precious thing in my life, which is my daughters. And that point of just, you know, hurdling the discomfort, mm-hmm. the, am I supposed to be here? Are we supposed to be here? Wow, they're so mean, you know. And they will look at you like, you're not supposed to be here. Right, or uh, automatically guess that, that, you know, you're here on some kind of like, Cons- you know, um, affirmative af- action right. or, you know, not because, you know, my little girl is talented, you know, and all of those things you have to kind of suck it up. Mm-hmm. You've got to acknowledge it, see it and kind of take that negative energy and, you know, kind of use judo and and use that energy to to go back to them. And and sometimes they don't care. And sometimes they, they have, you know, epiphanies and they realize, wait a second, I was a little out of pocket. Mm-hmm. But you don't let people realize, people can't realize that when you're antagonistic. People can't um, make that shift once you've made them a, a, you know, an enemy, once it's confrontational. So being able to take that with grace, understand that it's toxicity, but not let it, not absorb it and be able to spin it and use that energy to get a positive result is, you know, is my story, you know. And you're, you're opening doors both in your personal life through that and creating seats at the table, whether you, you acknowledge it or not, right. and in the business world as well. Right. And, 
and again, it's in business world, you know, it, it kind of gave me the lyrics, mm-hmm. right? But you have to feel like performing. You have to sometimes humble yourself to be able to see the bigger picture and what kind of diplomacy, social diplomacy that you have to uh, endeavor towards. And, uh, you know, I, like I said before, I'm Haitian. A lot of times, you know, Haitians, they, they're saying it's which cut their heads off and burn down their house. Mm-hmm. So the reason why my people haven't been able to be enslaved um, for the last uh, 300 years is because we're not having it. <laughs> but... Um, you know, sometimes I have to, you know, reel that revolutionary side in in order for me to 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 get to the bigger picture, in order for me to win for myself, whether it be business or for opportunities that I'm trying to create for my children. Mm-hmm. So Q, mm-hmm. QNYC is coming. Right. How can people find you, content creators who are interested? What's the timeline look like? All of that. So in... The next month, we are going to put out a press release and announce that you can come to our website, q.nyc, and apply. Okay. Uh, The reason why we haven't put that up yet is because we're still shaping the fund. There's people with a lot of their money, investors with a lot of their money that's inside of the fund. And then there's brands. Like now we're opening up the conversation to brands where they could come in and and buy at a a cheaper um, CPM and get more for their advertising dollar that they would have if they come later after the, the, the process starts rolling. So... We're giving them the opportunity to help shape the program and have a seat at the table. So we're not expressing it just yet. But in two weeks after we have these last couple of meetings with folks more on the investment side, we're going to start taking in um, applications. You know, it's it's really a simple format. Who are you? Show us your channels. Tell us your numbers um, and what makes you special. And from there, we have a council that we're developing here. Lori, Toby, uh, Emmerich, um, Patterson, who also is a, a principal here and kind of runs this place, Bushwick Generator in particular. Um, and we're basically forming that council to kind of say yay or nay. Um, a lot of it is going to be ad-based, what gives our advertisers comfort. Some of that doesn't mean your content can't be edgy or you mm-hmm. can't curse. I think we've we've uh, even brands have evolved sure. and kind of uh, realized that that stuff doesn't matter. Um, but you know, you can't be out here. Uh, I'm the Nazi party or, uh, or, you know, far, super far left mm-hmm. either. It's got to be, you know, consumable mainstream content in a sense, not in particular, but monetizable. Right. And we're going to open that up in, in, in a couple of weeks and, uh, I'll be sure to kind of ping you because I'm going to be looking at you guys too. Well, listen, we're excited to forge this relationship just in general. Um, it's awesome. y- you are an innovator. I can tell that not even just from your story, just but from our first conversation, I could tell that you're someone who sees something big before it's something big. And those are the types of people that we like to connect with. It's also the stories that we tell uh, here. And it's we're also creating this platform to be able to um, show people as they're building, you know, before they get to the how I built this stage. It's how I'm building this. So I appreciate you coming on and uh, and telling your story and also opening your space to us at the Bushwick Generator. This is amazing. No, I wanted you to see that it was real. Yes. (laughs) Oh, it it is real for sure. Um, To our listeners, especially our fellow content content creators out there who are friends of the show, you better put that Google alert on now for QNYC. Look out for Q.NYC right. um, as well. Get your application in when, when the time comes. Yeah. 
for sure. We'll cut the check. <laughs> Listen, there is no doubt in my mind that you're going to be cutting some checks. That's for sure. That's how it works. This It's the only way that's going to work the way it should. Absolutely. And as always, remember to like, comment, share, and subscribe to this podcast. And do not forget to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Thank you for listening to the December 26th podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa and music was provided by Thovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26er. That's December 26ER.